Welcome back to the non-standard 14er podcast, the podcast that talks about everything the root description leaves out about hiking Colorado's 14ers. We have a pleasure today because we have two authors and photographers joining the non-standard 14er podcast to talk about their latest book. Joining the podcast first is Jerry Norgren. Thank you. It's, I'm glad to be here. Also joining the non-standard 14er podcast, we got photographer John Fielder. Thanks. It's uh, great to be with you today and I uh, look forward to telling you about the new book along with Jerry. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. Pat, you're on mute. <laughs> also joining the podcast, we got walk mode Patrick. Oh, he's on mute. So. He's <laughs> mute mode Patrick now. <laughs> mute mode Patrick. <laughs> All right. We got the powder hound, which is walk mode Patrick's brother joining a podcast for the first time. Thanks for having me guys. And also joining the podcast, we got Jason Jack. Hey, how's it going, everybody? I'm getting ready to crack open my new favorite beer from up in Summit County. I don't know that one. What is it? Outer Range over in uh, Frisco. What kind of beer is it? Well, they're an IPA. They're an IPA house, but they're uh, they're right over there by the uh, the Whole Foods and the uh, Epic Mountain Sports, right off the highway, over off of Frisco. There, but they make some of the best juicy IPAs out there. Well, cheers, you, Kevin. I got a little scotch in my. Uh... Gray's and Tories glass. Nice. It's called the Ant Hills, I think. <laughs> now, is the Ant Hills? Is that is that because of that's what it looks like on a summer weekend, or is <laughs> yeah. that was actually the? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's a better one. No, because <laughs> the Arapaho Indians named it that because that's what it looked like from Estes Park, ish. It looked like two ant hills. So cool. I would. I would. I'd be in favor of renaming them the Ant Hills. Um, well, Chris, if you want to uh, start, uh, Jerry, nice to meet you. I'm Patrick. Nice Jerry, to meet you. Brother yeah. Kevin. Uh, Chris. Chris this is Big fan. Love the book. Oh, <laughs> thanks. Yeah, we got the, all of our copies here. Yeah, thanks for sending me a copy. John? Yeah. Um, have the rest of you seen it or just Chris? No, I bought this for, I bought Patrick and I Christmas gifts uh, uh, back in November. So we've been been uh, enjoying it since you know when he when he first got this he was he was super excited to, he's like i got the like the greatest christmas gift for you and usually we get each other a bottle of like whiskey or scotch or something so i'm like yeah yeah i know what you're gonna get i'm sure it's gonna be good um and then he showed up uh, and pulled this book out and i was just blown away i was like what this is <laughs> how did i not know this was happening and it's it's at a topic that it's sort of like floored that it hasn't hasn't been covered before because we've discussed this on the podcast before and we've discussed it, you know, while we're climbing, I'm like, okay, well, why did they name, why is it named Mount Massive? You know, and that, you know, probably to me reading that was one of the most fascinating stories in the book was just how much of a fight over the name for Mount Massive there was. <laughs> did it, did this whole book start with Rosalie? Is that how it started? Rosalie. Yeah. Rosalie. Yeah, it start. I was. I'm a member of a women's literary organization that was established in 1881, and it's referenced in the Mount Evans chapter. And in one of our meetings, the president at the time was reading an article from 1975 in the Rocky Mountain News that said that the Denver Fortnightly Club was instrumental in getting the name of Mount Rosalie changed to Mount Evans. <laughs> and then she just went on with other stuff. But that that's what started it. That's what hooked me. Cause I never knew it had another name. You know, that's really cool that 
And that seems like the inspiration was like the, just this one Rosalie story. And it led you to say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go spend some time and probably I can't imagine how much time uh, digging up uh, the resources and, and going through these period and, you know, historical pieces, researching this, how much time went into researching and where did you find all the resources to put this together? I first started, well, the time I researched, not, you know, five days, not five days a week for years. It was, it went on for about three and a half years though. And um, cause the more I found, the more I wanted to know. Uh, and I started at the Western history section of the Denver public library on the fifth floor, which is an amazing resource with all the microfilm of the newspaper articles and just everything. And they, the research librarians are amazing. You just tell them what you're researching and they'll help guide you to other resources and stuff. And then I went to the new national archives, which is way North on I-25. And that's where I found the originals of those historic sketches and also field the field notes from the Hayden survey. I mean, the actual written field notes. <laughs> and that was so cool to see that stuff. That was just amazing to see that. And then to find out that all the, um, those original sketches were digitized and in the public domain and nobody would ever done anything with them. And when John and I started doing it, the, we, he, he just got sent the files. I mean, it was that easy with those sketches. And then I was at the USGS library in Golden, I mean, in Lakewood, History Colorado, and an amazing online resource called the Hathi Trust, which is a repository of archived materials at universities all across the United States. So that was an amazing resource. And that's, I just went sort of back and forth and wandered around these different places for about three and a half years. I'm a history nerd and I'm a mountain nerd and, and a photography nerd. And we've been big fans of, of John's for, for a very long time. Um, you know, his, my coffee tables, you know, like a collage of his different books and, you know, and John for you, like when you, when, when Jerry came to you about this project and did, were you thinking, I have all these amazing photographs that I've, I've taken over time? Uh, or did you go out and, and say, you know, I need to get fresh photographs? What, what made you, like, what led you to put what pictures uh, to what peak? Well, there really wasn't any time to go out because um, I was in Steamboat Springs one year ago, March 15th. 2020, teaching a photo workshop just there after COVID started to handful of people. And I was having dinner that night in Steamboat before going home to Summit County. And I got the word at 7 p.m. that Governor Polis had canceled ski season. So driving home that night, I was wondering what I was going to do for the next three months since there'd be no at least resort skiing. <laughs> and uh, the next morning I got an email from Jerry who I didn't know telling, telling me just what she told you about her research and was there a book idea and she had had an entreaty from the University of New Mexico Press to do maybe a $15 black and white scholarly book about the history of naming the peaks and wanted to know from me if if that was a good idea, I said, yeah. 
great idea. $15 book sounds just about right. And then Monday night, the 16th of March, I couldn't sleep. And uh, I was thinking that night, you know, in the last 40 years, I've probably photographed just about every 14er. And even though my photos have always been better from the Alpine Lake at 12,000 feet, photographing the reflection of the peak rather than climbing to the top, because most of the photos look the same from each 14er from the top. I started thinking, you know, with the sketches, with my photos, and then I remembered Robert Walgren, a guy who approached me in the 90s to publish a calendar of his oil paintings of all the 58 14ers. I had turned him down at the time, but I wondered if he was still alive. So I did some research and he, it was last year, now he's 94, 93 years old. And uh, I asked him if he was interested in contributing his oil paintings to the project in the book. And he said, yeah, for sure. So I knew at that point we had the 70,000 words of text, which was still being written. I ended up finding, I spent the next two week, weeks going through basically the 80s and the 90s and the first decade of, of this uh, century. And I found 38 14ers reflecting in those mountain ponds in 20,000 four by five inch original color transparencies that I had shot back in the day with four by five before digital. And when I did most of my explorations of the state. So between my 37, 38 photos, Bob's um, practice sketches and his oil paintings, the Hayden survey and the Wheeler survey sketches, I came up with 56 of the 58 peaks in some sort of graphic way. And then I called our buddy, John Kidrowski, and I said, hey, John, I'm missing Cameron and Culebra. Can I have your photos from the top of those two peaks or nearby that you did when you did Sleeping on the Summits book? So he sent me those two and we had the 58. And then for the next three months, March 15th to June 15th, we put together that book, graphically designed it, had the text edited, all the things you know that you got to do to publish a book. And it was off to the printer June 15th because we wanted the book in Colorado in September, by far the fastest that I've ever put a book together. Hey, John, you know, it's, I think, you know, the, your pictures and the oil paintings and the original sketches that Jerry was able to get from the Hayden survey really tied the book together visually, showcasing the time at which they were, you know, discovered and named and then where they live today, um, which really makes the book, I think, come to life. So having read this book now and seen the sketches and seen the full project, does it, does it give you a, a new perspective on maybe revisiting some of these peaks and taking pictures of maybe from aspects that the, you know, that Hayden and his team had maybe seen them for the first time? Does it make you see it in a whole new light, kind of discovering it the way they discovered it? Nice idea. Um, but at this stage in my life, I turned... I'll turn 71 this summer. I'm tired of people 
on trails and thank goodness I still know secret places where nobody else goes. And uh, I'll grab the llamas in July, do the same thing I've been doing for the last few years, go find some of those secret cirques and tarns where nobody else goes. Unfortunately, there's no 14ers nearby, so I'm gonna have to skip that part. That's the way I did it for 30 of the 40 years with the 65 pounds of German Linhoff large format camera. 90% of the time I was off trail, scrambling over talus ridges at 13 and a half thousand feet to get from one drainage, one cirque to another. And then maybe we'd take the trail out to get home like we did to get in. And that was my modus operandi for all those years. But unfortunately, with two titanium, chromium, cobalt knees, one titanium, cobalt hip, I'm dependent on the llamas now. And the llamas, I haven't taught them either how to randonnée ski, nor get through <laughs> big talus fields. Are they your llamas? Don't you go to rentallama.com too? <laughs> <laughs> you rent a burros, burro racing, but not llamas. Stifler's in the burro now, racing. Stan Ebel with Buckhorn Llamas, four miles or just a mile south of Masonville, you know, north of 34 on the way up to Rocky Mountain National Park from Loveland. He uh, has been breeding and training pack animals for most of his life. And I rent the llamas from Stan every summer and bring them up here to Summit County and stake them out. That's awesome. And so, Jerry, it is the way that John used to get out with, with the llamas and, and up scree and talus slopes, is that sort of how your experience in the mountains has been too? Or what, what got you, I know you're a fifth generation Colorado native and what started you in, in the love of the mountains that made you want to take on a project like this? I'm just growing up as a kid from, from as early as I can remember, um, our parents took us my, into the mountains. I mean, we were always in the mountains. And my grandparents had a ranch up in Fraser when, Fra when there was nothing up in that valley. And we used to go up there with the aunts and the cousins and uncles, and we were just let loose out in, out in nature. And I don't know, I just, well, you know, you just, it just is a part of you, you know? And I didn't ever, when I started doing all the research, I was just doing it to satisfy my own curiosity. And I never thought it could become a book until about two years into it. And then I realized it needed to become a book because it hadn't been done, which was surprising to me. And that it was just sort of my gift to, to, to Colorado. You know, it just, having been a fifth generation, I just thought it would be just, you know, a cool thing to do, to give back. Do you think that, has it given you a, like a new reverence for some of these peaks, knowing, you know, reading about their discoveries, how they were, how they're named as I'm reading through the book, I'm reading about, you know, especially the, you know, and I start off with Pike's Peak because it seemed like there were so many mishits and them discovering that actual peak that you find yourself transported back to that point in time where it's like, you're discovering this mountain for the first time, you're seeing it from so many different angles and you can't get there. Does it, does it make you kind of, does it kind of transport you back in time and make you think about things maybe from a different point of view? Oh, yeah. When I was Pike's Peak, for example, and then looking at the maps and looking at Pike's map and all the different maps and seeing 
what their objective was and like you said, how they missed it. And um, then looking at subsequent maps that of you know explorers that came and just in comparing the maps and how the rivers were misplaced and the, you know it was just it was incredible. I think one of my the most awesome one was Sunshine Peak. Have you read that one yet with the lightning? And especially just the whole thing when the Hayden Survey was down in the San Juans that summer. Just the just the incredible endurance these men had and the the duty to their jobs and what they endured to do it. Just it's and reading the whole thing in the um in the survey reports because they're just huge but just reading all the details and stuff is just it's incredible it was really fun being transported back you know back in those days if i remember did wasn't the hayden survey like the same year doing sunshine that alfred packer did was was trapped in the winter you know, i don't like, know in the, what like 1873ish time uh-huh yeah was that the same year that packer was so. yeah oh wow the infamous uh, Packer dinner that was going on at the same time. A little history being made on both sides, I guess, of the uh, Rocky Mountain. Yeah. <laughs> I think Kevin touched on it too. Is like I look at this the book and and it feels almost like it's just it's almost like the coolest textbook I've ever picked up. And oh, and I mean like it's history along with art, along with beautiful landscape photography. And it's done in, in such a, and I, and it's the fact that you were able to put this together so quick is just, it floors me, but it's, I would, I would put this, you know, Colorado's highest right there with, you know, Jerry Roach's Colorado 14ers guidebook and say, you need to buy these as a package so that you can, you one, you have the guidebook and two, you've got some context, uh, you know, what you're, what you're getting into and, and how, how you're able, how people are able to use trails these days that back then, you know, there were no trails. Um, so yeah, that's, it's such a cool thing that you've done here and, you know, digging into some of those stories, you know, what was, you know, what was, was, were any of them like harder to find information on? Was everything just sort of readily there or what was like maybe some of the odder things that popped out that maybe you had to read twice. Cause you, you were thinking that's interesting. No, not everything had some of them. I just had to dig and some really didn't have stories like um, sunlight and, and those were just, they were just given an altitude on the Hayden maps and they didn't really put a name on them. And it wasn't until the early 1900s that the USGS was down there and they just threw names on them, you know, so they weren't really, and then I just dug and dug and dug on those and there really wasn't anything. And that's why I was at the USGS library in Lakewood because Whitman, Charles Whitman Cross was like a rock star in the USGS and he was out of Denver for a good while. And his specialty was the San Juans. And I actually went out there and they had boxes of his field notes. And I read through his actual field notes, nothing. He didn't, he just, he never gave a reason why he applied those names, you know? So I figured if I couldn't get them from the source, then, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't out there. One of the interesting things that kept cropping up was the amount of grasshoppers up on top of 14ers. I, that just totally surprised me. And it, it wasn't just one mention, it was several of them, you know, where they'd get up there in the clouds of grasshoppers and they, the grasshoppers would have died. And then the bears were up there eating them, eating all the dead grasshoppers. <laughs> so that, that to me was really surprising. And the fact that it was mentioned, oh, probably I read it about probably half a dozen times. 
human encroachment. I, I don't imagine that probably happens. I can't imagine the, uh, you know, the current hikers face if they were to climb a 14 and see a bunch of bears up there eating grasshoppers. I, I would, I would love to see that. Yeah. But that is, that is funny to think about that. That's, you know, that that's what stood out and, and, uh, with the grasshoppers and, you know, and I'm thinking what else, you know, what's, I guess, I guess going into, you know, the certain mountains and, and looking at the different groups and it's, and like you said, it doesn't seem to be like there was a whole lot of continuity between, you know, I, mean, I guess like the elk peaks all seem to be geographical or, you know, on the kind of rock like Maroon Peak or Conundrum or, or Castle. And then you get into the Sawatch. Did you find that by different mountain ranges, there seemed to be certain themes or did you just see, it just seemed like it was all over the place? No, there were actually certain themes and it was really representative of what was going on in the state at the time, like with mining. And that's where like the Lincoln and the Democrat, all that, a lot of those came from miners, which was a really big deal in the state at the time. And when the Hayden survey went into the Elks, they had this idea that they were going to call it the national range and name the highest peaks after buildings in Washington. So there was going to be post office and capital. And, you know, I mean, and they were good. They had a whole theme planned out. But then the more they and they really tried to respect uh, local names that were in use from the people that had been living there. And the Elk Mountains had been in use. And so they respected that and didn't go with the theme of the national mountains. But it really is representative of what was going on in the, in the state, not only in the state, but in the country at the time is how, they would, is how they would pick the names. But, you know, like Maroon and stuff, a lot of them were just very descriptive as, as was Mount Massive because it was massive. <laughs> so um, it's just kind there's of- a, There's a little story from. between, there's a little story in that Massive though. And it seemed to me like that was, that was sort of the, maybe out of all the peaks, that seemed to be maybe the biggest, I guess you want to call it a battle over naming uh, Mount Massive seemed to have kind of the most interesting story around that. Yeah. And that's how that, that was, that one was fascinating to me. I think that one's, that one and Mount Evans are my favorite, but just how protective everyone was of the, of that mountain and that name, they would, you know, write all that, write, <laughs> write those letters and get everyone just riled up which is completely different from the name change things going on today. So, I mean, Massive is such an innocuous name, but that was their mountain and that was the name. And it was going to stay that way. <laughs> hey, Jerry, you, you mentioned the respect that, the, that Hayden and his men had for the previous, you know, for the original inhabitants of that, that land. And then you just touched on the, uh, the name change propositions that are out there. You know, what, what can you tell us about that? That this whole kind of movement. I mean, we're we're as a country right now because of current events, and then also this has been going on for a while, especially with Mount Evans. You know, there seems to be this this movement towards you know giving names back, their name, you know, peaks name, the names back to the original names that they may have been named. You know, what what kind of light can you shed on on some of that that's going on? I'm still trying to reconcile it in my head with the you know getting rid of history as you know, is it right to get rid of historic things and change the names? The Mount Evans thing. Well, one of the names, one of the things that kind of bothers me is one of the names um, up for um, consideration wasn't even proposed by somebody from Colorado. <laughs> so it's, it's, I don't know, it's just an interesting time with, 
you know, people wanting to get rid of, you know, abusive history. And I've been in contact with the USGS in Washington, D.C. They, the new naming board in Colorado, that's probably the last one they're going to tackle since it is so volatile. And I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with that. I actually think it probably will, it will get changed. I think, cause there's so much outcry back to Rosalie. That's actually, I have a proposal in for that. Back um, to the original. Yeah. That's, you know, that's my proposal, but I mean, I understand, I understand a lot of the other name changes more so than this one. And it's really difficult. I read the two huge uh, scholarly reports that not only university of Denver, but um, Northwestern university did right a year and a half before the 150th, 150th anniversary of Sand Creek about how to deal with John Evans. What do we do? And um, how do we handle this? And it's just incredible the amount of good that man did, you know? So, and it's no excuse, but he wasn't the only one at the time that was doing things like this. And it's just, the, the, the one thing that really struck me when I was doing the research is, what had happened to the Native Americans and the indigenous people and how they were pushed out. And that to me was probably one of the most difficult things to read during all my research. So I don't know what's going to happen with it. John, what do you, what do you, where, where do you weigh in on this? You've been someone who's immersed themselves in nature and, and that transports you back into a place in time. You know, where do you, what are your thoughts on, on the renaming of some of these peaks? A difficult issue for sure. Um, I think, you know, as a society, we have to walk that fine line between uh, not losing the advantage of history, one of which is learning from our mistakes and being progressive and moving forward. Um, And if you uh, erase history, then that's not possible. On the other hand, the present is an important thing too. And if there are races, cultures that feel abused and it's ubiquitous enough, then the price we pay for renaming a peak is small. So I think you got to weigh those two value systems. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think it's, you know, a conversation that involves present and past with an eye on, on the future. And it's, you know, these, these peaks, they belong to everybody. And, uh, and it is, it's, it's a tough, you know, as you, uh, the Mount Rosalie, as it used to be named, you know, I generally would be okay with, with name changes. Um, I agree that you, it's better to, to talk about the history than it is to uh, erase it and, and it takes the conversation away. So how do you do that with keeping with the historical significance of these surveys and, and, and it speaks to, you know, the 14ers are, you know, maybe the one characteristic that of Colorado that I think everybody looks at and says this, you know, that is so Colorado. And, um, you know, I'm, I mean, some of us, we grew up in, in Evergreen at the, it, you know, in the shadow of Mount Evans and, and our grandparents' ashes are on that mountain. And uh, I can't say that it would upset me to see it as a Mount Blue Sky or a Mount Rosalie because that mountain is going to be that mountain no matter what people call it right so that again yeah, just- and touching on the um all the naming the in all my research there were 
very few um, recorded names that of the peaks that the Native Americans had given it. And they didn't tend to document things like that. And it was, you know, just verbally passed down from generation to generation. And it's been lost. Just very few names like the anthills, like I talked about earlier, just a handful of names. And I think the Hayden survey, if there was a known Native American name for a peak or something like that, they would have they would have stayed with it. But there just there really is there really wasn't. I think that brings up a really great, that's a really great point. And, and is that, you know, we can name peaks for, you know, the native inhabitants and, and that's fine uh, to honor them as well. Like we, with, you know, um, Shimano or Top Watch or, you know, but if, if those names are lost, I don't peak bagging wasn't necessarily a native American hobby. Like it is a, no. you know, <laughs> you know, a Western European or American thing. So, um, you know, it's, but they, they revered these mountains, I guess, uh, they probably looked at it more like gods or, um, you know, geological features that affected the weather or gave them outlooks, you know, probably things like that. Right. Exactly. And like, um, and Blanca, the, um, you know, it was the Eastern boundary of their land and yeah. So, and, and, you know, for Pike's peak, I mean, it could have had a handful of different names depending on what tribe you know, that wouldn't have had the same name. And, you know, they would have their winter camps and their summer camps and they'd go over high passes and stuff. And so, yeah, they had, they had their names for it. Yeah. It's a, it's too bad. And the interesting thing is, is, you know, no name, even they've been interviewing lots of um, tribal members from the Arapaho Cheyenne and no name has surfaced. That was a name for that peak at all. So. That's crazy. From the source on naming 14ers, how do you pronounce that Sawatch range 14er that starts with a T? Tabawatch? Yeah, can you say it one more time? Tabawatch? Yeah, okay. I've heard a lot of people butcher that name. Oh, uh, what do they say? Oh, Tabaguchi. <laughs> <laughs> what else? Yeah, but then is it Shavano or, or Shavano? <laughs> yeah, see? And those are both named after Ute leaders? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shavano. I guess I say Shavano. Shavano. I say think I say Shavano. Say Shavano. <laughs> Shavano. This is the we're in the tomato tomato debate here. Yeah, I guess there probably isn't really a definitive answer on that one, is there? No. No. <laughs> How about is there another definitive answer on Sneffels? Because it feels like there was and when we were doing a podcast on Sneffels, we dug up a couple. Some people thought it was, you know, the reference to a journey, the center of the earth or the Icelandic but volcano right. and some people thought it was from the miners who just had sniffles sniffles <laughs> yeah <laughs> no it's from the um journey to the center of the earth so yeah i read these the original story that one of the members that was on that climb was standing right there when when um the geologist Endlich was standing there and there was a giant huge hole and he said that looks like snaefowl and it was spelled it was a huge name from Jules Verne, Journey to the Center of the Earth. And then that's what they, that was it. <clears throat> yeah, to this day, that's one of my favorite 14ers. Like, it's just, it's something otherworldly when you're climbing on that. You know, I, again, now we can get, let's, we get into, back into like some of the actual, like the 14er, you know, like, so we can get into like, you know, your favorite, 
Jerry, you know, what was your favorite 14er? You can combine it, your story, if you climbed it. Same with John, like it's, what seems to be that one 14,000 foot peak or, you know, back even in the eighties, nineties that always seemed to pull you in that you thought just provided the best, the best photograph that really told the story of this is Colorado. These are the Rocky mountains. You know, I'm a nature egalitarian. <clears throat> My new book that'll be out in September is called Weld County, 4,000 square miles of grandeur, greatness, and yesterdays. And not only is there no 14ers, there's no mountains except for the Pawnee Buttes. And this may be the most beautiful book I ever did. So, you know, for me, circumstance i mean you know what did it take to get to that location what drainage did i go up what lakes did i camp next to what smells did i sense how did the water taste for me nature is all the senses not just the views and that's a big part of the emotion and sublimeness of any photo so you know that's a personal thing and it's hard for people to understand that although you know if you look at that image in the book of Wyndham and Sunlight Peaks that I made from a drainage that shall go unnamed where the light on that massive is as orange as I've ever seen it and simultaneously the clouds in the sky are pink and typically the progression of light at sunrise and sunset doesn't allow simultaneous orange light on the peaks and pink in the clouds that typically the pink goes away long before the direct light hits the peaks and somehow at that location they merged the night before when i was getting ready for bed i had scouted a location where I would put each of the three tripod legs in front of that little pond in order to get the reflection perfectly and then pray that night that uh, the light occurred the next morning that there weren't clouds blocking the sun on during sunrise and that I would get color. And so I got up in the dark as I always do, you know, before 515, 5 o'clock in the morning and go to the location one after another that I preconceived the day before and started with that one and set up the tripod legs in the dark and just sat down in, in the meadow on some pinky olus granite waiting for the light to make a long 20-minute story short. It happened. Probably the most remarkable moment of alpine light I've ever seen in my life. But it was the smells, the sounds, the taste, the touch of the pinky olus granite on my bottom when I sat down to wait for the light. So it's an emotional thing. And, you know, all these peaks are beautiful and lovely and under the right light, the Pawnee Buttes are just as beautiful as Wyndham and Sunlight peaks. But with that said, you know, I've been pretty much every square inch of Colorado. I've been up almost every drainage in each of 28 mountain ranges in the 
Colorado Rockies. I've photographed almost every single alpine lake and those drainages. And it's all extraordinary. And from a photographer's standpoint, in the right light, when the sensuousness of nature is at its best, every single place is remarkable. Hey, John, you told such a great story about that one specific shot. Is there somewhere we can go, a certain book, or where can we find that photo to put context to your story? You know, that's funny you'd ask, because uh, I do have a book. Uh, in 2002, I published Mountain Ranges of Colorado, which is kind of my epic mountain book. It's all of my work from 1982 to 2001, mostly, like I said before, you know, with the large format camera, bushwhacking every square inch of the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. And uh, that book is divided up into each of the 28 major mountain ranges in Colorado, like the San Juans, you know, or seven mountain ranges all rolled into one. And I tell stories in that book of what it took to get the photos and what the... Um, logistics of getting there was, how many Sherpas I had and what our experiences were. So lots of good stories, lots of good photos and mountain ranges of Colorado still in print by John Fielder. How did you get the llamas on the train? <laughs> um, you know, the cattle cars <laughs> where they're open air and people sit facing away Oh, so you really did, right? You really did take them on the train. You know, you have two kinds of cars. You got the enclosed cars, right, with the seats mm -hmm. facing forward, and then you got the cattle cars for the low-price customers <clears throat> facing um, laterally, right? Mm -hmm. So um, when the conductor wasn't looking, I was able to load three llamas onto one of the cattle cars. By the time <laughs> they discovered them, halfway up the Animas River Canyon. It was too late to kick us off. Are you, are you, are you messing with us? <laughs> Did you really? Listen, that's a joke. Ah. This is not a joke. In 2000, listen to this. Quick story. In 2006, me and five other guys, including the infamous Aaron Ralston, you know, who uh, self-amputated his right hand to save his life in Blue John Canyon in 2003, well, starting in 2002, Aaron was one of my best Sherpas, even before his accident and even after his accident. So in 2006, the six of us did a complete traverse of the Needle Mountain Range, the mountain range, you know, that's uh, north-south trending to the east of the Animus River and the train. And uh, we had the train drop us off at, uh, at Needleton, and we went up New York Creek, not Chicago Creek, because we didn't want to do, I'd already been up, you know, many times up Chicago Creek and Basin. And, and what we did was we went up New York Creek to 12,000 feet and then north over the ridges from drainage to drainage to drainage to drainage. So New York Creek, 10 Mile Creek, Vestal Creek, and out Elk Creek. And there's like six of them photographing all the high lakes and then down Elk Creek, you know, which is the Colorado Trail, Continental Divide Trail, or yeah. And then down to 
the railroad where the train would pick you up on the north end of Animas River Canyon in a rainstorm. And before the trip, Aaron said, hey, because I never really, I didn't really do the train. All my bushwhacking and the needles was, you know, by Aceto Creek, by Aceto Reservoir, over Hunchback Pass from Kite Lake on the north end. So Aaron said to each of the six of us, bring $21. We said, why? He said, I'll tell you at the end of the trip. So at the end of the trip, in that rainstorm, we hop on the cattle car. And Aaron says, okay, follow me to the bar car. So we all go to the bar car. And we each had, um, for $7 each, three margaritas on the way home. And we'd had nothing to eat that day because we'd run out of food. <laughs> we were in shorts and T-shirts, bloody, sweaty, tired. And when you have three margaritas on that kind of empty stomach, it's dangerous. By the time we got to Durango, they had to, they had to bring wheelchairs out to get us to the parking lot, to get us to our cars. But halfway on the trip, we were on those outside, no cover, lateral seat cattle cars. And next to me was a 10-year-old boy, and next to him his grandfather. And, you know, there's signs on the cattle car especially when you're on the um, cliff, cliff wall side of the train, not to stick your hand. Oh, he left us at a cliffhanger. I know. <laughs> <laughs> he froze. To be continued, next episode. <laughs> right. I mean, we're all on the edge of our seat. I know. So who was sticking their hand out? Yeah, right. <laughs> Did he yeah, lose tell us the end of the story. Yeah, he didn't lose his hand, did he? <laughs> well, okay, while we're, waiting, while we're waiting for John, maybe Jerry, I, I, Patrick, you might need to pose the question to her again. <laughs> <laughs> right. I know, John, John's such a great storyteller, and just like you just I get know. pulled in. He's got, and, and both of you are, and this is why this is, this is so much fun. So what's, what is, what's your favorite story in, in the 14ers and, and, you know, like, like John's saying is like, everything is about the senses. And, and so, you know, what's Jerry's favorite 14 or story? Have you climbed all of them? Are you, or is that a goal? No, I haven't climbed all of them, but for a while I was, um, my ex-husband was um, the nephew of the climbing Smiths. Did you know the climbing Smiths? I've, I've heard of them. I don't know much about them. Yeah. Oh, they were amazing. Um, so my ex-husband's cousins, like when they were, you know, starting at eight years old, the dad took them. I mean, they climbed every 14 or before anybody really did. So anyway, um, no, it was never my ambition to climb them all. And like John, I remember uh, sort of the emotions of the climb, not necessarily what it looked like or what it was when I got there. I mean, I can remember exact conversations on quandary, you know, which is no big deal of a climb, but I can remember the conversations. And probably the one that stands out for me the most is um, skiing Grays and Tories. There were four of us and we skinned up Grays and skied down Tories. And it was just, I don't even remember what it looked like on the top, even though I'd been there before, but it was just the whole, it was just doing it, you know, and, and talking with the people and um, standing up on top of Tories and looking down and going, oh, I don't know if I can do this. And my knees were just like jello. And I'm like, Oh God, how am I, I going to do this? How am I going to do this? And I had Ronda Nay gear and the first, you know, the first couple turns, it was, oh, but I, I did it. And then I got into the rhythm. 
Um, it just looks so steep, but once I did the first couple hop turns out of there, it was, it was okay. So it was, it was things like that on, on climbs. And then there were several of them I did by myself, which is probably not the smartest thing to do. Um, and, and now just with so many people on them, it's just, I don't really have, cause all the ones I did, we were the only ones there. I mean that, you know, we were the only ones on them. So um, I kind of like, I'm like John, I kind of like <laughs> being by myself out there or just with a few people. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to ask if you have one that sticks out as your favorite peak or favorite, uh, favorite range, if that's too difficult, because they're all so awesome. Well, they're all so awesome. They all are. And especially after doing all the research and, and all the writing and stuff, they're just, every single peak has a special story. So I don't really have a, but my, I guess my favorite stories are massive in Mount Evans. Awesome. That's great. Hey, John, you left us right when you were saying the guy lost his hand because he was touching the rock on the train. Now, what happened? Father, grandson, we were all leaning in, waiting. Yeah. There's a real cliff thing. Yeah, I'm on a... Uh, Literally. I'm on a satellite, so I, it must have cut off. At what point did uh, you lose me? You said you said a grandson reached out to touch a rock. You're not supposed to do that. And then the look on your face was like he lost his hand. Yeah. Well, no, no. Here's... Here's what happened. So <laughs> bear in mind that uh, we were all drinking three margaritas, right? On an empty stomach. So when the little boy started reaching out, even though the sign said, don't reach out, you can be injured. Aaron, Aaron Ralston was seated a couple of people away on the bench. And I looked at Aaron and he looked at me and he nodded because he saw the kid <clears throat> reaching out. So Aaron came, he got up from the bench and came around behind me and the kid. And he uh, put his prosthetic arm with the hooks around the kid's shoulder and in front of his face. And he said to the 10-year-old boy, he said, son, don't you see that sign that says not to reach out and try to grab things? When I was your age, I was on this train and I reached out. And look what happened to me. <laughs> Impact, yeah, right place, right time for an impactful lesson. <laughs> the kid started crying and ran over to his grandfather, but we were we were too tipsy to um, appreciate the denouement. <laughs> the other the other question I have, you know, you you have a foreword in the book that talks about us, you know, as a society, hopefully turning this leave no trace corner, you know, when Patrick and I did Chicago Basin for the first time, it was back in 2009. So that which doesn't seem like it's that long ago. And we were the only ones on the train getting off at Needleton. We only saw three CFI workers up on Eolus. That was it for the entire duration of the three or four days that we were back there. And then fast forward to 2013 and Stifler was with us. We went up to, to grab Eolus because we were unable to get it the first time. And there were 150 some people on that train. Whoa. And, um, you know, the first thing that comes to mind, and this is how Patrick and I got onto our soapbox of conservation and protecting the peaks and, and really doing our part, you know, to protect the beauty of what makes Colorado, Colorado. And you touch about that at the beginning of it, you know, what is, you know, 
let, let's talk about that because we all have gotten involved in conservation. We had our outdoor retailer where we had where you were kind enough to join us in the booth and we talked about the core act. You know, is there something that should be expanded upon for listeners to to think about when they enter these prestigious wilderness areas and they're climbing on the trails, you know, because you've you've been back there longer than we've at, we've been back there and we all share the same kind of view on that. Well, thanks for asking and yeah, that issue is kind of like the issue of uh, correct names for peaks. You know, they're both dichotomies and um, you have to walk a fine line between two sides of the issue. And in the case of um, people in nature, it's the same thing. You know, if you don't get people outdoors, to do, like I said earlier, not just look at it, but to smell it. You know, the fragrance of decaying aspen leaves in the fall, one of my favorites, to taste freshly melted uh, mountain water, you know, two feet from the snow in July. If you don't hear, you know, the, the sound of mountain bluebirds, if you don't... Um, if you don't enjoy all those things as well as the views, you know, you can never really appreciate the miracle of 4.3 billion years of the evolution of life on earth. And the only way to enjoy those things is to get out there and walk the talk. So, you know, as much as I love my books and this new book about the 14ers, which is an extraordinary book, looking at my pictures is no substitute for being there. But the problem with being there is add uh, COVID to the recipe and get, you know, triple the number of people on trails that uh, have been there the previous year and not enough public land managers nor volunteers to help people understand both the etiquette and the ecology of places and why you don't take a bath with soap in a mountain lake and why you don't set, um, a four diameter stump on fire next to Gore Lake in the Eagle's Nest Wilderness within three feet of the lake, which I caught some kids doing a few years ago. So it's up to the rest of us who understand, you know, the graphic and, and unfortunately ecological impact that humans can have on natural places to help educate. And thank goodness we've got groups like Leave No Trace who are in the business to to do that, but uh, you know, there, we, we unfortunately, it's a losing proposition to tell people not to go because a they won't do that, and b they need to be there, and because if they are not, they'll never be advocates. So really, it's about uh, education. And one of the things I've been telling the Forest Service for the last few years is that trailheads, instead of you know, 20 square feet of maps and instructions on uh, how to get from point A to point B and, uh, you know, other informational things that two-thirds of trailhead signage ought to be preaching the gospel according to uh, how you act and how you don't act when you're in remote and wild places, and that would go a long way. 
is there anything you think we should be doing further than that? You know, I, I try to put myself in the shoes of people that, you know, like you look at two summers ago when Capitol Peak experienced probably, you know, the most amount of carnage that it's experienced in its, in its lifespan of one year with people just experiencing going up on the trail that were not adequately prepared for it. They probably are going to bypass that sign is that, you know, do you, you know, is the answer what's what we're starting to see, which is, you know, permits, you know, so that people really truly understand, you know, that you impact them where it impacts them the most, which is their wallet to get up there and access those. So maybe they pay attention more. Well, ab- absolutely. That was two questions. And by the way, that summer of 2019, I was doing a llama trip from uh, the marble area over Avalanche Pass on the backside of Capitol, you know, and Capitol Pass that drops down into Avalanche Creek. And I was there when those, I mean, that summer, five people went straight up the southeast face of Capitol because they didn't pay attention to signage and didn't do their due diligence and research. And But yeah, education is critical. We got to get the word out. Um, we got to do a better job of getting the word out on what you do and what you don't do when you're in wild places because the amount of feces and, and toilet paper that I see now is extraordinary and unfortunate and fires being built in places that fires have never been built before and fire rings and, you know, it, it's extraordinary. So we're not doing the job of education, but in terms of permitting, yeah, that's the backup plan and it must be done if nothing else works. When I started my career in 1981, uh, right away I went to California and Washington and packed into the Alpine Lakes wilderness and into the, you know, Sierras. And in the 70s, they started permitting to limit the number of people in any given drainage on both sides of the Sierras long ago because the land managers then did not want any impact whether people knew what they were doing or not. And Colorado, I, I keep telling the, you know, each of the U.S. forest managers, we haven't done enough. Chicago Basin should have been permit only, you know, to a certain quantity of people long ago, just like Indian Peaks was. And we didn't do that in the Maroon Bells until recently. And it's still not extensive enough in the Maroon Bell Snowmass Wilderness. But um, we should have done that. And we need to do that. Hey, John, this is Jace. I've got a question for you. Um, it's, it's not very often that you get to pick the brain of one of the most accomplished nature photographers of all time, arguably. And I'm wondering, for our listeners that are aspiring nature photographers starting from scratch, um, what advice do you have for that population? Well, everybody's a photographer. Uh, but if you're, you know, you want to get serious about your photography, what an extraordinary way it is to bring back you know, memories and souvenirs and to be able to share what you saw with other people, which can be used beneficially, like I just said, to educate people and to show people who might not be able to get there for whatever reason, show them what's out there. and Maybe they too will become part of the vanguard of progressive people um, to preach the gospel according to protecting what's left of wild places on earth. So photography, as always, is a great medium like the saying, you know, it says a lot more and a lot more eloquent words than we can ever say with our voices. But 
with that said, get up at five o'clock. Don't go to bed until a half hour after sunset. Um, you know, the best light is within a half hour before sunrise and an hour after sunrise. And the same thing at the other end of the day, yellow, orange, red, and shadows that create depth in the photograph. But then too, you know, clear weather, sunrise and sunset. I always appreciated that, especially with beautiful clouds in the sky. But then I prayed for monsoon from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. So that when I was hiking two, three, four, five, 25 miles during the day to get from one campsite to another, one location to another, that I'd have clouds in the sky. So I didn't have the sun directly overhead, which washes out the colors and makes the contrast too great for photography and most of the summer, my dreams came true. And, uh, you know, that cloudy light was very advantageous for photographing colors and, and textures. So, you know, that's good advice for people. And, and uh, you know, with digital cameras today versus the film that I lived with most of my life, you get instant feedback on your LCD and it's easy to make corrections for the mistakes that you're making. And finally, composition and design is critical study classical art design techniques like um, artistic tension where you draw the viewer's eye from one place to another the way you design a photograph and think asymmetrically so that you don't have things in the middle you know the rule of thirds is a good place to start so better yet come to a john fielder photography workshop go to johnfielder.com for the latest schedule which unfortunately is suspended until I feel more comfortable with COVID, but we'll be back in business and come to a workshop and I'll tell you everything I've learned over 40 years about making good photos. Awesome, John. Thank you. That's great wisdom. I appreciate that. Well, hey, Jerry and John, what is what is your lasting impact? What are, what are you hoping that most readers take away from the book? I mean, obviously there's history being told there. There's beautiful photographs, there's oil paintings, there's there's the original Hayden survey maps, but I mean, your ultimate goal from the book, the reader's takeaway, what is it that that's not obvious? Hmm. That's an interesting question. John, you go first. <laughs> I, have, I have to think about this. Uh, thanks for asking. Good question. You know, really, uh, the last, my last diatribe is what it's all about these days with uh, the acceleration of global warming exponentially to degrees greater, literally degrees and figuratively degrees greater than even most of the climate scientists even could have predicted even just two, three years ago. The challenge for biodiversity and uh, how to protect, you know, 4.3 billion years of life on earth is uh, is huge right now. And the last thing we need is, you know, human beings not doing what they need to do, either sharing their passion for wild places and talking about etiquette and how to act and not act when you're in our most, most beautiful places. And, and, uh, and then, like I said, sharing it verbally and in writing and writing letters to editors and speaking your mind about you know, how, how lucky we are to be sentient beings on Earth, on a planet, in a solar system, in a galaxy, in a universe, in a multiverse. I mean, you know, we take it for granted 
two arms, two legs, two eyes. And it's tough, you know, when you're trying to feed your family. Um, and during COVID, with all the challenges that's beget society to think about the big picture, but we got to find a way to do it. And those of us who have the more of the freedom to do that must do it better than ever. If not, my fifth and sixth grandkids are due here at the end of the summer are never going to be able to know what the five of us have known in our lifetimes. So that's what the book's for. It's fun. It's informative. But in the end, it's got to be a vanguard for protecting what's left of life on Earth. That's great. Okay, Jerry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, sort of what John touched on, that I hope people will read the history as the obvious history, but then go back even further, like John said, to realize, you know, these mountains didn't just appear when the surveyors started coming. These mountains, you know, didn't just appear when Pike came or the first people came and that they will... Um, just really go back and, and learn to have respect for what's here. And, you know, hopefully we'll understand that they're, they're responsible for helping to keep it that way. Yeah. I was just going to ask. So now, so now that this book is done, what's Jerry, what's, what's next on the docket for you? I'm sure this left some creative juices that leave you thinking kind of like John, like where can I photograph next? What can I write about next? And then John, the same question to you after Jerry, like what, what's next for you? Do you have any other books coming out? You mentioned Weld County, you know, is there anything out West in the Western slope that you're looking at? You know, like there's lots of new frontiers for both writing and for photographing. So naming the centennials. I, I actually have a better project than any of you can imagine. So yeah, I'm putting the Weld County book together, but uh, at the end of last year, the Colorado Wine Board, which is the state agency that does all the promotion for the wine industry in Colorado, of which we have, believe it or not, almost 80 vineyards and wineries, has hired me with the Colorado Tourism Office grant to photograph wineries and vineyards in 2021 so that they can use those photos to promote the industry. And there may be a book in 2022. So um, I've just secured the best gig there is. And yeah, most of it's on the Western Slope. So I'll be over there this year taking pictures of the Western Slope of wineries, vineyards, and uh, sipping um, Colorado's version of good wine all summer and fall. I, um, well, since everything's, all my research places are sort of closed up, I don't know about a future book, but I'm really intrigued with Ellsworth Bethel, who was the one responsible for getting the Indian Peaks Wilderness area named and naming those peaks. And I want to find out more about him. His records seem to have disappeared. So I want to try and hunt those down. I don't, who knows where that'll lead, but I'm just very intrigued with him. He was just sort of an unrecognized name. And he was one of the um, ones who helped establish Rocky Mountain National Park too. So I don't know where that one will lead, but that's, he's my newest fascination. So he had um, Native American names for all the peaks and he made a map and then sent it off to the USGS in Washington, D.C. And then he also, um, and James Grafton, did, and it's now out at um, the Colorado Mountain Club because you can't see it anymore. They did 
a bronze plaque in Cheeseman Park of all the peaks you could see from this certain point in Cheeseman Park, which you can't anymore because of all the trees. So that now has been removed. But he did he did all sorts of interesting things. And Ellsworth Street is named after him in Denver. So anyway. Jerry, I got a couple of rapid questions for you so you can settle this. Did Zebulon ever get to the top of Pikes? No. How many 14ers are there? Well, who do you, depending your, on who you're your source. <laughs> you're the source. See? Who's your source? I used um, the Colorado Geological Survey. Which is 58? They, they have 58, yeah. And then the Colorado Mountain Club has their 300-foot rule, and then there's all the different. So I just stuck with the, with the Colorado Geological Survey because, you know, you can't dispute science, so. <laughs> there's a better way to express that. 58 is better than 54. <laughs> Jerry, you mentioned earlier about how you was a research product that you were just interested in, and it really wasn't an act like a grind. Was there any part where, you know, you had to fight procrastination to publish it or grind it out? Or was it just all fun, always discovering new things, a joy? It was, at, I'm, I know it sounds like a cliche, but it was fun the entire way even writing it in the rapid rate that we did. I, when I started doing research, I didn't go in order and it was whatever rabbit hole I was traveling down at that point. And I would Xerox or print or whatever about whatever peak I found. And I have 12 two inch binders and I have each um, range and each peak in that range had a section. So anything I found, I put in that section. And then I would periodically go through it to see you know, what I was short on. And then I would start, you know, getting that. But to me, it was just, the whole thing was so much fun. And the writing of it was, was really fun. So the hardest part was writing a book proposal. That was painful. That was really hard. <laughs> so it sounds like you didn't need like a, I'm going to sit down and write three hours a day and just grind it out and be that my, my rule. Uh-uh. No, it just, um, it just came to me and I was just, it was, I was just, it was like an all day, every day thing. And I wouldn't, I had no deadline for a while because I was just researching for the fun of it. So, but then as John said, when we started during um, lockdown and everything, I mean, then we de uh, definitely had a schedule. I had to write every single day, pretty much all day. John, going back to your, your uh, photo, uh, photograph of um, from Yolis, Wyndham uh, Sunlight, is that a composite? I know that with digital photography, these people now take like three or four different images and then they mesh them together in Photoshop or some, or some digital program. Is that, is that cheating? You know, most of the photos in the 14ers books book were made in the 80s, 90s, and the first decade of uh, this century up to 2010, which is when I switched from film to digital. So, no, these are basically uh, scans of four by five inch transparencies, four by five inch proportion, sometimes cropped to panoramic, but mostly full frame. But yeah, today with digital, like today alone, I've had two requests, one from uh, CU Health Sciences Center and another from uh, a new retirement home in Colorado Springs to decorate walls 
10 feet by 30 or 40 feet. And uh, we do that by printing on five foot wide adhesive wallpaper strips, good photo paper, and then they get mounted on the wall. So we can decorate any wall, you know, 100 feet long, 10 feet long, 40 feet long. But obviously when you try to blow a single photograph from like my cameras, a Canon 5D SR 50 megapixel, 9,000 by 6,000 pixels, 9,000 pixels is not gonna preserve the detail in the image when you spread it across 20 feet. So what I do now is stitching, which I think is what you're referring to, where when I find a good scene and good light, um, I'll make up to nine or 10 vertical, slightly overlapping shots going from left to right, rotating my body. I can do it handheld if I'm at a high enough shutter speed or I can do it on the tripod if it's uh, early morning and I, I have a slower shutter speed. And then in either Photoshop or Lightroom, I can stitch all those together seamlessly. It's called Photo Merge. And I'll end up with files um, 8,000 pixels high by 40,000 pixels across, you know, which are huge files, but they allow me to make these massive wall murals um, for people. So, no, I don't, uh, my ethic my entire life has been to make nature look only the way it looks to my eyes. So in the film days, we had problems with long exposures and film going purple or green. Um, the temptation to use gradual neutral density filters and of course the temptation with digital to create beauty in the eye of the beholder that has nothing to do with reality and never admit to the public or people that see your photo that you've changed nature, which creates a whole new paradigm, a whole new impression of what nature is for a lot of people that don't know what it really looks like. So it's a huge ethical thing in the digital world. And even today, no, with digital images, uh, which don't, you know, sensors don't, don't allow the colors, the contrast to look exactly the way they look to the eye, especially early in the day and late in the evening. And so everything I do in Lightroom and Photoshop and every photo is Photoshopped and Lightroomed is to make it look the way my eyes saw. And uh, that's my ethic and always will be, always has been. Um, but those panoramic, panoramic images are remarkable. Just in closing, this has been such an awesome, awesome time with both of you, really informative and fun. I do have one final question just for those of our listeners that do want to pick up a copy of the book. What's the full official title and where can they find it? The title of the book is Colorado's Highest, The History of Naming the 14,000-Foot Peaks with text by Jerry Norgren, with photographs by John Fielder, with oil paintings by Robert Wogren, and with uh, historical sketches by the artist of the Hayden Surveys. And it's uh, available now. We were out of print for a few weeks at Amazon. You can go to Amazon and get fresh new second printing copies. It's available at any local Colorado bookstore too. So just check with your local book retailer. If it's not in stock, they can now get it because we're back in print. Yeah, it was great. Thank you both so much. Oh, it's been really fun. I've had a great time. And I did just well, buy the book on Amazon. Oh, good. Good. That's the, uh, that's the new edition with all the typos fixed. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks a lot, John. Thanks a lot, Jerry. Really fun, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye.